It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your children are? The evidence was circumstantial, and the prosecution brought Wayne Williams to trial for two of the 28 killings. Apartments on Buford Highway, where we now have new developments in the ongoing investigation of the Centennial Park bombing. General Robert Abrams, for the first time, and officially calls the Tawana Brawler story a lie. At a press conference this morning, Seattle Police Chief Robert Hansen announced a special task force being formed to study Ted Bundy. Join us now as we go beyond criminal headlines. And I'm your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett. This week, we discuss the trial of Ross Harris, the Georgia father convicted in his toddler son's hot car death. As always, I'm going to give you a little background, some context, and specifically, I wanted to walk you through a timeline of the day that Ross Harris's son, Cooper, died. So this was the morning of June 18th, 2014. Justin Ross Harris, who goes by his middle name, Ross, was supposed to take his 22-month-old son, Cooper, to daycare on his way to work at Home Depot in Vinings, Georgia, which is a suburb just about 20 minutes northwest of Atlanta, Georgia. The daycare was nearby. By all accounts, it sounded like this was pretty routine for Ross. So Ross and Cooper ate breakfast at a nearby Chick-fil-A around 8.57 a.m. After breakfast, Ross drove his car, an SUV, to the Home Depot office where he worked in IT, with Cooper strapped in a rear-facing car seat in the back. He entered the office around 9.25 a.m., leaving Cooper in his car seat. Around 12.30 p.m., and this is important, Ross was picked up from work by two friends to have lunch at a nearby Publix. Following lunch, they stopped at a store. Ross purchased light bulbs, and then his friends dropped him off Back at work, at his workplace parking lot, he walked to his SUV, opened the driver's side door, and placed the bulbs inside on the driver's seat. So again, very important. This came up, of course, during the trial. We'll get into all that. There is surveillance video of this time period, but it's grainy footage, and it's hard to tell. We still don't know if in that moment Ross saw Cooper in the back seat. At 4.16 p.m., about seven hours after leaving Cooper in his SUV, Ross returned to his car and drove it away from his office. So I guess after driving for just a few minutes per the reports that I've read, Ross realized Cooper was still in the back seat. He later claimed he immediately pulled into the parking lot of a nearby outdoor mall he called for help, attempted CPR. Cooper was unresponsive when he found him in the back seat. So this came up during trial two. There were conflicting witness accounts about whether he immediately called 911, um, what his demeanor was like. There were some witnesses who said he was hysterical and some who said he was surprisingly stoic. So we will unpack all of that. I promise. So Ross told responding officers that he forgot to drop his son off at daycare that morning, of course, instead driving straight to his job as a web developer for Home Depot, um, forgetting that Cooper was still in his car seat. I've read different accounts that temperatures that day got into the high 80s. Some said temperatures reached 92 degrees outside. In the days after Cooper's death, evidence surfaced that some would say ultimately led to Ross Harris's arrest in his son's death, not just for negligence, but also for malice murder, in that he had allegedly searched for information on hot car deaths prior to all of this. Um, so investigators, prosecutors eventually would argue that he had planned this. And, and we'll get into some of the why. Um, he was also living what some would consider a double life. He was married 
at the time uh, to a woman named Leanna, Leanna Harris. They have since divorced, but it came out that he had been uh, pursuing relationships with a number of other women, sexting, uh, meeting up with sex workers. Needless to say, what started off is is just horrifically tragic. This case took on really an unexpectedly salacious and sinister tone. Ross was charged with eight counts related to Cooper's death. And in 2016, a jury found him guilty on all counts, including malice murder. A judge sentenced him to life without parole, as well as uh, 30-some more years in prison for other crimes related to his relationships with other women and for sending inappropriate messages and material to a minor. During Ross Harris's trial in 2016, uh, like I mentioned, prosecutors argued all evidence points to Ross Harris was unhappy in his marriage and intentionally killed Cooper to free himself. It was an escape. Of course, defense attorneys said that simply was not the case. He was a devoted father. Being a bad husband does not necessarily make you a bad father, and that Cooper's death was a tragic accident. Pan to June 22nd of this year, Georgia's highest court, the Georgia Supreme Court, overturned the murder and child cruelty convictions against Ross Harris. And I'm going to stop there because, as always, I'm getting a little too far ahead of myself. But there is your background for this case. Uh, we're going to unpack, of course, more of what happened during Ross Harris's trial, key testimony, evidence that came out, all of that. And, of course, the Supreme Court opinion as well. It was just so surreal, I think, to see his name in the headlines again this past summer. I mean, this case gripped the state of Georgia for years and the nation as well. And for those of you who followed this case, you know we have so much more to cover. And so this week, I turned to someone who knows way more about legalese and law enforcement than I ever will, and that is Philip Holloway. A former prosecutor and police officer, Philip Holloway has a wide range of experience in legal matters and law enforcement matters, both as a practicing attorney and as a media analyst. He's the founder of the Holloway Law Group based in Cobb County, Georgia. He's also currently a top legal analyst for 95.5 WSB in Atlanta, Georgia. He's appeared on several national media programs to discuss countless cases. He has his own podcast and he's billed as a cast member on the incredible true crime podcast series, Up and Vanished. For more on his background, please go back and listen to episodes 11 and 14 of this podcast. They dropped April and June of this year, where he shared his incredible insight into the trial of Ryan Duke in the Tara Grinstead investigation. But back to this week's subject, I could not wait to pick his brain about the Ross Harris case. So we're going to jump in. Here is my conversation with Philip Holloway on the Ross Harris trial. It's so good to have you back on the podcast. For listeners who have not heard our episodes on Ryan Duke and the Tara Grinstead investigation, please go back and listen. <laughs> but for those who haven't yet, um, tell us a little about yourself and your career so far in both law and law enforcement. Uh, my name is Philip Holloway. Um, I'm a practicing attorney. My office is in Cobb County, Georgia, where it has been since I moved back to the Atlanta area around the year 2000. I am the legal analyst for WSB Radio here in Atlanta. Um, I also am a frequent uh, legal analyst on uh, cable network television news. Um, and at the time of the trial of Justin Ross Harris in Cobb County, Georgia, I also worked for CNN and HLN as a um, contributor and legal analyst. And so we we followed every moment of this case from the very beginning uh, when the child died all the way to the conclusion of the trial. And of course, recently with these developments, uh, 
we find ourselves back in the the news with the uh, upcoming potential retrial of uh, Justin Ross Harris. So you had alluded to what sparked all of this, of course, on June 18th, 2014, knowing you covered it or followed, covered all of that, like the rest of us from start to finish, the trial of Ross Harris. So before that, though, in what you have followed, what you've heard, anyone you've talked to close to the case, what could you tell us is some background on Ross Harris and then his son, Cooper? Justin Ross Harris, or Ross as he, his friends and family called him, was a, an employee for, of, of Home Depot, but he, he didn't work in a store. He worked near the Home Depot headquarters uh, in Cobb County at an offsite location in IT, I believe it was. And he was married and, and he has had this one child, Cooper. And for those who, who may not remember, unfortunately, in the afternoon or during the day, I guess, on June 18th, 2014, Cooper died in Ross Harris's SUV parked outside of his, his office in the parking lot. And the the issue in the case was whether or not Ross Harris had committed uh, a murder, as he was charged with by the prosecutor, or was it some type of tragic accident or maybe something in between? The Lots of the facts of this case are not really disputed. It's undisputed that Cooper, he was in the care of his father uh, that morning, that he was put into a car seat. They went to a nearby Chick-fil-A, which is very close to not only the Home Depot headquarters, but uh, also to the offsite location where Ross Harris worked. There was also a um, nearby, there was a, a daycare that Cooper uh, typically would attend. Um, and for reasons that are, are basically the subject of this criminal case, uh, somehow Cooper never made it to daycare, but instead was left in his father's car. And of course, in the summer in Metro Atlanta, it's very hot. And with the windows closed, uh, in a car, it becomes an oven. And, um, the the news broke on June 18th, and and obviously the entire city kind of reflexively just kind of gasped because this is a horrible way for any person to die, whether it's intentional or an accident or otherwise. It's just a horrifying death. Well, as the days and hours went on, um, the media started following the case, and uh, Ross was arrested. And he was eventually charged with, um, I think the, the original arrest warrants had to do with uh, some type of manslaughter, but then the, they were upgraded eventually. He wound up standing trial for murder. But on, on June 18th and in the days that, that followed, information about this case came out in, in drips and drabs and there was leaks and then there were um, rumors and all sorts of things going every which way. And it was really hard to separate um, what the truth was from what was maybe rumor and speculation. But that's what made it sensational because there was like press conferences and the police would come out and say things like um, they had information that suggested he had been doing Google searches about, uh, you know, how kids can be killed in cars or words to that effect. And as as the information kept coming out, it became more and more just horrifying. And so the media and the public was glued to this case. And we moved forward. We had the preliminary hearing, and that was really our first opportunity to hear directly under oath from the, the, the lead investigator in the case as to what the evidence was. And so things were were testified to at, at that stage that further reinforced the um, sensational aspect of this. Um, so this was the case, actually, that brought me to WSB. 
I remember I was leaving a, a live hit at CNN down at the CNN Center here in Atlanta, and I got a call from Chris Camp, who was our news director at the time, and he wanted to know if I could stop by, and um, the rest is history. That's what brought me on board as the legal analyst for WSB here in Atlanta. Um, but the, the media aspect to this just really uh, took off. It soared. It was like nothing that I'd ever experienced. And it was not like nothing that, you know, Cobb County had ever seen before. We had our share of murder cases and tragedies and all sorts of things as, as any, uh, you know, criminal court system will, will have. But this this really was was something else. I I, to- I can only imagine. I totally agree in that, like you pointed out, it, it's a horrible, tragic incident, regardless whether it was intentional or unintentional, which we didn't know to begin with. But then when we start getting these reports that they have evidence that would suggest it may have been intentional, I think it added this this whole other dark level to the story. And so just out of curiosity, too, we're talking about what actually happened on June 18th and him, Ross Harris, saying that he just simply forgot that Cooper was in his back seat. He went to work and then found him as he was driving away from work hours later in the back seat, called authorities, pulled over into a parking lot, called authorities. I'm curious in covering and, and following the trial, what did witnesses say about Ross Harris's demeanor uh, the the day that this happened, I I want to say that I'd read there were conflicting reports that witnesses that were there on the scene said he was hysterical, but then other other people, other witnesses may have said he actually was not. He was oddly calm. So yeah, that's I think that's fair. Um, the there there obviously were were witnesses that were present uh, when he pulled over and basically took Cooper out of the car seat, and he was was deceased at the time, but this all took place behind a, a pizza restaurant or Italian restaurant over near the Cumberland mall area. And there were uh, other pedestrians and people that, that came to see what the commotion was. Then of course, police showed up and you had some of this um, captured on uh, police dash cam videos and things like that. And then, so what, what you had was you had people who were there and then people who in law enforcement who reviewed the videos and, and even law enforcement who was there that were in interpreting uh, and giving their opinion on what his demeanor meant or may have meant. And so it, it depends on who you would ask, but people who came forward with their opinions were very certain, you know, and, and that's always dangerous. Um, just objectively, I've always had a problem with trying to sort of decipher someone's guilt or innocence based on, you know, how they behave under a, a extremely horrifying, uh, emotionally charged um, event, right? So you're talking about the death of a child. I don't really know how someone is supposed to act. Um, but people would come forward and say, well, he certainly wasn't acting like he was concerned. Um, well, that's their opinion, and that's fine. And, and maybe it's true, but Maybe it's also that he's in shock. So there's always, uh, you know, more than one way to look at these things. But the media and, uh, you know, law enforcement in their press conferences and even in the preliminary hearings, there was nothing that that was released by Cobb County police or the prosecutors that, you know, kind of gave the, any other side to this. And it was to what it was what happened, the media and the public was left to sort of discuss it. Um, and, and I'm not talking about just on radio or television. We're talking about social media and in person. It was literally the talk of the town and became the talk of the state and, and in, in some ways part you know, the country. So people were left to kind of figure out what does all this stuff mean? But you got to back up and, and realize that the, the, the information that was either leaked or that was stated in court, all of this stuff turned out to be, well, let's just say there's, it it wasn't always accurate. So when we had the trial of the case, we weren't left to accept a, an individual's interpretation of the evidence. We actually got to see the real stuff. So for example, 
this whole thing about Ross Harris doing Google searches on, you know, how kids die in hot cars and all this, that was not true. It turned out to be something very, very different. And we didn't know this until the trial years later. So it turns out that he, he wasn't doing any Google searches back in the days of Google Messenger when that was the thing. Uh, someone sent him a link over Google Messenger, some type of an instant messenger, and said, look at, you know, look at this. And so he just clicked on the link. It'd be like if I sent you a text and said, hey, check this out, and you clicked on the link, that doesn't mean you're searching for it. But what, but what the link was, it was a video of a veterinarian doing something like a public service announcement where he was in a car with the windows rolled up with a thermometer, a, a big giant thermometer, so you could see how hot it got. And he was making the point that it's, you know, it's, um, it's cruel to leave animals in hot cars. And so that was really what, what this video was. And it's a far cry from someone sitting there in some kind of nefarious, sinister way, you know, Googling, okay, how long is it going to take me to bake my child to death in a hot car? But, but that was the impression that the public was kind of left with. And when it came out at trial, for example, that, you know, that wasn't exactly what had happened. A lot of people were scratching their heads. They were thinking, now, wait a minute. We heard, you know, press releases. We heard testimony under oath. We heard all this stuff about this, this Google search. And today, as we talk today, if you ask people, have you heard about the, you know, the hot car death trial of Ross Harris? And they'll say things like, oh, yeah, that's the one where the guy was Googling how to kill his child in the back of a hot car, right? So it, it's a myth, and it persists to this day. But going back to the very beginning, because we were left with, you know, a high-profile case, lots of public interest in finding out what happened. People were going out. Journalists were recreating the drive, deciding, okay, how can you forget that your child is here in the distance between the Chick-fil-A where Ross and his son Cooper had breakfast in the very short distance over to Ross's uh, office? Um, how are the red lights timed? Do you have to do a U-turn? How many exact minutes would it possibly take? And so people were out there basically trying to figure this out on their own because they were left with bits and pieces um, of information and in many instances, information that was not accurate. So there was just a lot of stuff going on and it became very hard to separate fact from speculation. And like you said, speculation, the court of public opinion throughout this entire case and trial, I mean, it ran rampant. And like you pointed out, too, I'll be honest, up until probably the trial, I did not realize or even after the trial got underway, I didn't quite know how to process that. Oh, so he didn't research hot car deaths. He was just clicking on a link, which, you know, you do get those links uh, usually around summertime where a lot of experts will put out opinion pieces on leaving your dogs or animals in the car, even, you know, the pavement's too hot for a walk, just keep these things in mind. So it became, like you said, it was, it muddied the waters for sure that you're thinking to yourself, okay, it's not as sinister as we thought. Um, what other red flags though, I, I don't know if we could call them red flags, but what else came out about Ross Harris that would you say fueled the public's opinion of him? There was information that, and I believe the first we heard about this was maybe at the preliminary hearing where uh, the lead investigator testified. But there was, uh, when, when, when Ross was taken into custody, he was taken to the police headquarters, put in a room that was uh, had video and audio recording going on. They let his then wife, Leanna, come in there with him. And so there was some discussions between those two that were um, things that, you know, a husband and wife might be expected to say, you know, what happened? What'd you say to them? What'd they ask you? Um, and depending on who you are and what your point of view is, those questions might seem innocuous, but in other instances, they might seem very sinister. Like, you, you know, did you say too much? You know, and there was people trying to figure out what this bits and pieces of these conversations meant um, without necessarily having the entire context. And so at the time, it made for very interesting television and radio and news hits. 
it was fueling the the speculation that was just rampant in the court of public opinion. And you mentioned Ross's wife, Leanna. I'm curious at first, um, and even maybe throughout the trial, did did Leanna stand by Ross Harris? Did his family stand by him and say, you know, he's a good father? He didn't do this on purpose. So the, it was very interesting the dynamic that developed uh, between Ross and Leanna Cooper's mother and his his wife at the time. She was at the time and and at every point since she has been adamant that he was a good father and he loved his son and that there's no way this was intentional. And I'm paraphrasing. I don't want to speak for her, but I have spoken with her. I talked to her for my own podcast and we did a very long interview and I had on the record and some off the record discussions with her. And she is, she has been very adamant from the very beginning that, uh, that, you know, with respect to this case and these charges, he's innocent. Now, one thing, though, that it did come to light was that Ross was, uh, and I think it's fair to say, he was sort of a double, living toward a double life. And unbeknownst to his wife, he was he was um, sending inappropriate messages to uh, young girls, in some cases maybe underage girls, and he was also visiting um, prostitutes, the police went through all of his electronics and he had a lot. I mean, that was, he was in the, in the IT field. So he had a lot of devices, a lot of computers, laptops. So they had a lot of digital information to go through and they, they basically picked apart his whole life. And in so doing, they determined that he had this side to him that his wife wasn't, wasn't aware of. And so it was all very salacious and, it it fueled the the public debate, the public discussion that, you know, he must have obviously, uh, you know, killed his child on purpose because he wanted to live a single life. He was unhappy with his marriage and he just wanted to be single and free again. So that it kind of it kind of played into that um, point of view. But then there were a lot of people that said, now, wait a minute. Yeah. OK, he's not a good father. I mean, excuse me, he's not a good husband. Okay. He's maybe a philanderer. He's, you know, cheating on his wife. He's being unfaithful and he's got moral failings, but, but people were able to separate that from him, you know, knowingly murdering a child. They, they, and they really are two separate things, but the prosecutors used that information. And, and their theory was that he was so distracted by sending these, uh, text messages to underage girls and all this. He was so distracted by his sexting and and his desire to be single and, and able to to date around. He was so consumed by all that that he just, you know, um, hatched, you know, maybe a scheme. Now, he was not charged with, I don't believe, malice murder, uh, but he he was he was definitely charged with like felony murder. And so their theory was that he he was doing all of these things to the point that it sort of consumed his life um and that you know if he could just be free of the the burdens of not only marriage but of of parenthood then then he could feel he could be free to then pursue all of these things unencumbered right i and i remember it just added like you said you've got he's brought to the police station he and his wife leanna have this conversation that depending on how you viewed it some said it was maybe a little um a little sinister i mean depending on the questions that were asked but and then other people like you said had the opinion it's just a husband and wife having a concerned conversation together about what's just happened um leanna has stood by the the fact that she believes this was not intentional but Obviously, one could say living a double life, not being a great husband doesn't necessarily make you a bad father uh, or murderer. Um, but these text messages, the sexting, all of that, it was all anybody could talk about, you know, up until the trial. And then during the trial, when you had this carousel of women that they brought forward to testify, which I know we'll get to. But so September 2014, 
Ross Harris is officially indicted and then pleads not guilty to all the charges brought against him. Uh, I guess it's 2015 that Cooper's official autopsy is released and it's determined hyperthermia is how he died. So he was overheated. Um, And then the pretrial hearings get underway that you alluded to. A lot happens um, in the time and events that led up to his trial in 2016. Can you kind of walk us through what happened? I know there was a change of venue, right? So, yeah, this this was a, a big piece of it. There was an effort, and there always is. You know, we we want to have trials in the the jurisdiction where they occur. Georgia law requires that, and that that's called venue. And in this case, the the crime was alleged to have occurred in, squarely in Cobb County, and so uh, the the default setting is to pick a jury from Cobb County. Well, so. We, we, this was a a jury selection like no other. And I was at the time, I mean, I was every day uh, down there with CNN and HLN doing, you know, live shots outside the courthouse and pre-recorded stuff. I mean, my all day, every day was just consumed with the media coverage of this. So that's just my personal experience that I went through. So that gives you some idea of how intense this was. Um, the, they brought in jurors and they they questioned them for uh, quite some time. Um, I want to say it was a couple of weeks, maybe. Um, I'd, I'd have to go back and look. But it, at some point, it became apparent that there was no way to find jurors here in Cobb County with our very large, big media market, right, that people it – was, it was impossible to find somebody who hadn't heard about it. But – it was also very difficult to find people that had not formed certain opinions um, one way or the other to the point that they could not set them aside. So, yeah, eventually the um, the the court, on, upon the motion of the defense, had to um, move it. Okay, so they 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 just basically told all those potential jurors to go home. We're gonna, you know start to take the show on the road and, and and do it elsewhere. So they decided on Glenn County down in Brunswick. And the, the reason for that is um, under Georgia law, you've got to find a jurisdiction that has reasonably similar demographics. And so um, it, we've, we've done that before in Cobb County. We've, we've had Glenn County cases that came to Cobb and vice versa for that reason. So it seemed to be um, an easy thing to, to decide on, but what wasn't easy was moving all this stuff down from Atlanta to the, um, you know, the coast of Georgia, almost in Florida. That's a long drive, and you got to move uh, volumes of evidence. You got to move the actual car was an exhibit in the case, so they had to move it down there. They had to move the, the people, so you got prosecutors, you got judges, you got support staff, you've got uh, police, you got witnesses, you got all of the things that make it's hard enough to do it here to organize that logistically, but to take it on the road where everybody's living out of a suitcase is, you know, just a a monumental undertaking. Absolutely. I can't, I cannot imagine that. I had not processed Cobb County to Glynn County and I'm, I live in Savannah, Georgia now, so I'd be closer to Glenn County. But I mean, that's a drive. That's a pretty hefty drive. So so they get everybody down to Glenn County, start over with jury selection, um, finally find a jury, and then his trial officially gets underway in 2016. Now, side note, too, I just wanted to note, in the in the middle of all the preparations, uh, Leanna Harris did file for divorce. Correct? Yeah, and that was, of course, another breaking news moment in the saga of the collapse of the, you know, Ross Harris and Leanna Harris and Cooper family. I mean, it was, you know, the, obviously the, the death of the child is, is a big event and is extremely difficult on a marriage. But when this information kept coming out and, you know, you got, reporters knocking on her door, just harassing her. I'm, I'm sure her life was miserable for all sorts of reasons. Um, but to, to lose the, the, the faith in, in your spouse in the process. Yeah. I mean, I felt that 
Um, I, I wasn't surprised that she filed for divorce. Um, nevertheless, uh, it, it, even though she had divorced him, in the process, she still wound up being a witness for the defense in the case because despite her animosity that she may have felt towards her then ex-husband for his infidelity, she nevertheless was convinced and adamant that he didn't do this on purpose. It wasn't a crime. Wow. Okay. I'm remembering that now, but you jogged my memory just then that she actually wound up testifying for the defense. And in that in that same vein, um, what was testimony like all around? I mean, what any bombshells did they come out? What was the key testimony you think uh, throughout the trial that had the most impact on this case? Well, by the time that the the trial came, you know, so much of this had it been released out into the public domain in, in some form or fashion. But I don't know that there was any one thing that was, I would say, bombshell, but there was it was like dribs and drabs of evidence that came out that was tested, you know, by the crucible of cross-examination and other things. So we got to put it all in context. And so we mentioned the the Google search that wasn't a Google search, for example. Um, and the, uh, there were other things that the public, I think, in many instances believed had, they felt that they had been sort of misled, that some of this evidence didn't didn't come out the way it had been sold to the public in the way that it would. So the defense kept a lot of this close to the vest. Um, they held a lot of things for trial. They um, were able to do, I think, a very good job on balance of of showing people's biases and 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 also to to show that people, human beings, you know, memory is a, a very complicated thing. And the, one of the big pieces of this trial was how could you forget, you know, you had your child in the back of a car. It seems counterintuitive, but we know that it happens and it happens a lot. It's happened this year in this state of Georgia and elsewhere, and it happens every year. Um, so like I talked on my podcast, I spoke with a memory expert, the, the leading memory expert in, I think, the world, Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. And one thing that, that she told me about in, in another context was that, you know, it's not like a recorder where you can just turn it on and it and it captures everything. Memory is dynamic. It's fluid. It's changeable. It's malleable. And it's oftentimes unpredictable. So um, while it may be counterintuitive, if we if we think about it and study it, we know that it does happen. And so the defense did a pretty good job of educating the jury that, you know, it is possible to forget even the most important of things, such as your child in the back of your car um, and for it to be an accident. So there were lots of things that that they were able to do to educate the jury. And there were lots of things that once the evidence came out and it was seen in context, a lot of the a lot of us who were watching the case were like, wait a minute, I didn't expect it to be that way because I heard at, at other hearings, bear in mind, we had the probable cause hearing, but we also had pretrial motions and we had lots of events where witnesses took the stand. And so there had been evidence that, that came out. But when it was all sort of put together at the trial, the defense did a really good job um, educating the jury that there's more than one way to look at things. And, um, you know, you got to keep an open mind. And they, they, did a, they did a very good job under very, very difficult circumstances. I remember one of those moments uh, for me while I was watching the trial was that we had heard uh, he had texted one of the number of women that he had been, you know, inappropriately messaging, you know, something to the effect of, I I need an escape. My wife and I both need an escape. We love our son, but you know, we're in need of some kind of escape. So I remember the way that that was manipulated or maybe twisted. Like you said, maybe we were misled at toward the beginning of the trial is I thought to myself, the prosecutors jumped on it. This was his way of saying, I just need my son out of the picture, which the defense argued <laughs> not necessarily. 
you know? Yeah. So look, I mean, I think people can relate to the idea that parents of, of children, even small children, they need an escape. Sometimes they need to go do things either by themselves without even their spouse. Maybe it's the parents that need to get away for a little while, or maybe the whole family needs to get away together. Some kind of an escape. It's like, my kids don't know this yet, so don't tell them, but we're going to, we're going to go on a cruise this year at Christmas because we need, we need to escape. We want to get away. Um, and we think that it's going to be good for everybody. And so we talk about that. So if you just hear bits and pieces of a conversation, um, you might draw an inference that there's something sinister, but on the other hand, it can also be completely innocent and harmless to be planning, you know, an escape to use their words. Right. So the way that this was portrayed was, it was just thrown out there into the public discourse and the public domain and the public would just, you know, ruthlessly try to decipher it. And so you had people that were, very adamantly convinced that that meant he was meticulously planning and uh, and, cal- and calculating this murder. And then there were other people that said, no, wait a minute. No, there's, there's another way to look at it. But it, one thing that, that always bothered me, and I, I'll be honest with you, I was, I was all over the place uh, on, on this case. Um, I, one day I might think it was leaning towards an accident and there might be another day I was saying, okay, maybe it's a murder. But one thing that I never could really get my head wrapped around, if this was a murder and I misspoke earlier, he was charged with malice murder. And this is what reminds me if, if, if he was charged with malice murder, that meant that it was planned, that it was, uh, deliberated on. Okay. It was, a cold heart. It was a malignant heart. If, if you plan to bake your child to death in the back of a hot car, that is probably the, the cruelest way I could conceive of to kill somebody. So if, if you have evidence that someone premeditated and deliberated that kind of death and you don't seek the death penalty, I want to know why not. And they didn't. So um, that was always something that I could not really reconcile. I mean, if you believe and you have solid evidence that it's a malice murder planned and deliberated on, you know, and it's that awful and that cruel, then why the hell aren't you seeking the death penalty? Because if ever there was a case that would have deserved it, that would be it. But then you had these other charges, you know, um, where they also charged him with um, – you know, felony murder that doesn't require malice, cruelty to children, which is based on, you know, some type of hyper criminal negligence, you know, and and so every legal theory that you can think of in a criminal homicide almost was thrown into this indictment. And to a certain degree, and I mean no disrespect to the prosecutors who drew this up, but at, at, at some point you you have to wonder, well, if if the state doesn't know if it was malicious versus, you know, criminally negligent, if they if they're going to put all this in the indictment, does that suggest that even they're not sure? And if and if you're on a jury, I can I can easily see this discussion happening in a jury room. Like, how can he be criminally negligent um, at the same time he's malicious? Because the two are, you know, mutually exclusive. It's so true. And it's like throwing spaghetti against the wall and just it kind of felt like seeing what would stick almost, you know, yeah, and you run enough stuff up the flagpole. Somebody's going to salute something, as they say. Right. Right. So do you think throughout the trial, just out of curiosity, as we talk about testimony, maybe versus just hard evidence we had, like I mentioned to you before, this slew of women that he had been speaking with testify. Do you think that had an impact on the the jury's verdict? I know because he was also charged with disseminating, um, I forget exactly what the charge is, but disseminating inappropriate uh, content to a minor. Um, What kind of impact do you think that had on the jury? Well, yeah, clearly it had an impact. And so here's the best way to look at this. Criminal trials are you know, they're a contest and prosecutors try to get a conviction and the defense tries to avoid a conviction. And every bit of evidence 
that a prosecutor brings into a criminal courtroom in a trial is designed to be prejudicial to a defendant and prejudicial to the defendant's case, right? But trials also have to be fair. So it's just like on a football field. You've got you got sidelines, you've got parameters, uh, you got the playing field upon which everybody's obligated to play. And then there are certain things that are inbounds and certain things that are out of bounds. So prosecutors are not supposed to use evidence that is so prejudicial that it becomes an unfair trial. And, and the way the, it, it's, it's like this, you, if the danger for unfair prejudice outweighs the probative value of the evidence, it shouldn't be admitted. And so it's not that the evidence, you, you can't let in prejudicial evidence. Clearly you can. You just aren't supposed to have evidence that's um, overly prejudicial to the point that it's unfair, if that makes sense. And so that's really what happened in this case is there, and, and ultimately the Georgia Supreme Court in reversing this case, you know, they found, and I quote, that a large amount of evidence of sexual activities had minimal probative value in showing his alleged motive to kill Cooper and was needlessly cumulative or highly prejudicial. So that's what the reversal of this conviction was about. This was about, and I'll just say it's like, you know, they, they, they overtried their case. They put too much evidence in that had really nothing to do with the murder. So when you, when you're investigating Ross Harrison, you find that, you know, several months ago or a year ago, he visited a prostitute or sent a, 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 a picture of his penis to an underage girl. Well, that's a crime, but that does that need to be part of this trial? Okay. And so that's really what, what the issue was. And that's what got the case reversed. Interesting. It's hard, you know, as the, the public and the media discourse, it was hard to separate the two, especially at the time. And so, um, just trying to, again, jog my memory, did Ross Harris ever take the stand? No, know? I don't believe so. Okay. Um, the, there would have been no benefit to it. I mean, really they were able to get all of the defense case out, um, uh, without his testimony. Um, the, there, there really was no defense to some of the charges like the sexting. And this case was really all about, you know, what was in his mind during the day. So there was one, one thing that, you know, happened in this trial, there was, for example, this is, this is how the defense was able to make their case, you know, without having Ross testify. There was this evidence that showed him on video returning from lunch during this day when Cooper died. He had gone to lunch with some friends from work. They went to a restaurant. They came back. He, he rode in their vehicle and they had, you know, he'd stopped at a store and I think he had bought some light bulbs or something and put it in a paper sack or a plastic bag. And he was seen on video. This is security video from the parking lot. He was seen going to his car and chunking the the uh, the bag in the front seat. And so, but it, but it wasn't the best video, although it, some people had described it as conclusive proof that he walked out to the vehicle to, you know, check on the, whether Cooper was dead yet. That's kind of the way it was sold by, by some people to the public. But when you actually saw that video, it was, wasn't the best quality. It, it wasn't clear that he even, you know, pointed his eyes in the direction of the front seat or was he just kind of walking to the car sort of on autopilot and not thinking about what he was doing? It, it was really sort of up to open to interpretation what that evidence meant, if anything, okay, as to his state of mind. So that's what the trial was all about, was what was his state of mind on the day that Cooper died? So he did not need to testify. They were able to get their point across through you know, Leanna, some expert witnesses, um, lay witnesses, other individuals, they were able to make the points that they would want to make with regard to, to, to his mindset during that day without having to have him be cross-examined by very skilled prosecutors. I remember that now, the video of him going back to the car, and you can't really tell whether he would have been able to still see Cooper in the backseat, um, but just adds another layer uh, open to interpretation. Uh, so much is open to interpretation in this trial. So um, 
you mentioned Leanna testifying that had to be very emotional. I'm sure she was. Was um, Ross Harris emotional throughout the trial? At times. Uh, at, at times he was, and at times he was sort of stoic. Um, but you have to understand, by the time this trial happened, I mean, it was a couple of years later, I guess. And, you know, he's been in jail the whole time. And there had been multiple pretrial hearings. And so, you know, the initial shock of it kind of wore off. But but I do remember instances, and he's not the only one that got emotional. Those of us who followed the case got emotional. When you see the pictures of, of Cooper um, dead, and when you see the... The, the car and the car seat and those kind of things. It's very powerful. And um, yeah, he, he did get, you know, emotional at, at, um, at times. I remember the, in the videos, the home videos they played of Ross Harris and Cooper. I got very emotional throughout the trial. So, um, and I can only imagine that had an impact too on the jury, I would assume. Um, uh, yeah, but maybe not enough because, you know, the jury did find him guilty. You know, right. um, the Georgia Supreme Court, I think, uh, Justice Namius, I think, wrote this opinion. They they pretty well, you know, said what a lot of people who were watching this trial in real time said, you know, at the time that the Ross Harris may have, you know, had this, I think, the, the, a sex crazed double life is the way they wrote it up. You know, but this does not mean that that is relevant to show he had a motive to murder his son. And they also said that, and this is, I think, very important, and the, the current district attorney in Cobb County has got a, 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 you know, I don't envy him having to make this decision, uh, but he's got to decide about, you know, how to proceed if there's going to be another trial in this case, because the Supreme Court said that the evidence for, you know, motive for murdering his child to the Supreme Court's words were, it's, quote, far from overwhelming. Okay. And so they, you know, they also said that the trial court should have severed the, the trial, meaning that the, the charges related to sexting and other things should either have been on a separate indictment or she should have conducted two trials and, and done all those separately. And so clearly if there's going to be a retrial, there's going to have to be, um, some severance of anything that's left, although I don't think he's necessarily contesting um, all of these these sexting charges. But the the prosecutor is going to have to decide, you know, with, with without using all this other evidence that shows he's a pervert and a philanderer and just a generally terrible person, uh, you know, with without all that stuff, do we have enough to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt that he committed malice murder or felony murder, those sort of things? And when the Supreme Court of the state of Georgia says that the evidence on that is, quote, far from overwhelming, that's going to give you something to think about if you're the prosecutor. Absolutely. And so like we've said, November 2016, he's found guilty on all counts in Cooper's death, um, also on all counts related to inappropriate messages and things like that. He was sentenced to life, I guess, with an additional 30-some years. Um, and then it seemed like things were relatively quiet in the case up until this past June, and the Georgia Supreme Court overturned his murder conviction, upheld his sexual crime convictions, which he didn't contest. Um, and you've read some of the opinion that was written by the Georgia Supreme Court um, and sort of just touched on this, but we're not sure what's next. I mean, what is the latest now with this reversal? Well, I'm glad you asked because I was looking up the most recent activity in the case. The trial judge, Judge Mary Staley Clark, has now retired, and, and she was in charge of this case from the beginning all the way through the trial. And she's now retired. She was uh, replaced. She was a, her replacement was appointed by the governor. That's judge Julie Jacobs. And so that's where the case would, would go to. However, there is a, a, um, a motion. Let's see here. It's a motion to recuse judge Julie Jacobs filed by Maddox Kilgore, who was the, the lead counsel for the original trial. And he's filed a motion to recuse 
Judge Jacobs um, because um, the lawyer, Mr. Kilgore, he filed a motion and he attached an affidavit, his own affidavit to it. Um, it says that um, Judge Jacobs inherited the courtroom and caseload formally assigned to Judge Mary Staley Clark. Uh, in the direct appeal litigation in the case of Harris versus State, which is this case, the state of Georgia was represented by the Cobb DA's office as well as the Georgia Department of Law, which is the Attorney General's office. And um, the Georgia Department of Law directly and specifically litigated against the position and interest of Justin Ross Harris filing a brief in the Supreme Court. And it goes on to state that at all times during the basically the appeal, uh, then Deputy Attorney General Julie Jacobs was serving as a senior lawyer in the Department of Law, the Attorney General's office, and that um, her effectively her law firm, the Attorney General, appeared in the Supreme Court of Georgia and argued to sustain the convictions. So, you know, uh, they are using her place, uh, her former role or position as a Deputy Attorney General supervising actually as well uh, by saying, you know, you, you can't, you can't be a lawyer in a case and the judge in the same, you know, kind of same thing. So um, it's not saying that she did anything improper. Uh, that's not at all what they're saying, but they're just saying that because she was a lawyer who was representing the state of Georgia, uh, you know, ag against Ross Harris, or at least in her, you know, air finger quote firm, if you will, then, you know, she would be just disqualified as a matter of course. Uh, and the way that it works is a, a another judge, in this case, Judge Henry Thompson, who's also a Superior Court judge, signed an order on October the 4th of this year, basically scheduling a hearing um, on whether or not she should, in fact, be recused. That hearing was scheduled to have happened on October 14th, but I don't see any um, additional order as to whether or not that was granted or denied. So it's in limbo right now as to who will be the judge that's responsible for whatever happens to, next to this case. So we got to get past that issue first. And then the prosecutor has to make some decisions about, you know, how the DA's office is going to move forward with what's left of this case. Wow. Okay. I mean, it was just crazy after everything I remember following 2014 through 2016, then it's relatively quiet. And now for it to be back in the headlines is pretty surreal. So um, I always like to end on a note about the victim in this case in particular, of course, is Cooper, Cooper Harris. Um, you mentioned you had the opportunity to interview his mom, Leanna, um, from what you saw, heard speaking with her, speaking with anyone close to the case, how did they describe Cooper? And I know, you know, only 22 months old, but how would they want him to be remembered? You know, by all accounts, Cooper was a happy young kid. I mean, as you mentioned, 22 months old. And um, the only child of this these parents, and by all accounts, their, their family life, centered around Cooper. And I said family life because clearly, you know, there were some things going on in Ross Harris's life that did not center around Cooper, but with at least with respect to the family activities, everything was about Cooper, more or less. Um, healthy, happy, outgoing, you know, uh, when I spoke to his mother, she, as to be expected, you know, she loved her son, misses him. Uh, I'm sure still, deeply grieving over his loss, but she said that he was just an absolute joy. I'm sure. I cannot imagine what she's gone through as someone else who might get forgotten when we talk about the Ross Harris case um, is definitely, I think, Leanna Harris. And um, is there anything from, from all that you've covered, like you said, start to finish with this whole saga that you that stands out to you, anything that you'd like to add about your coverage of this trial? You know, I don't really know where to begin to answer that question. This was, um, this was a case that started for me um, just on the, the drive home from work one day. It had been an otherwise, I guess, ordinary day because I don't 
nothing else about it stands out. But as I was getting very close to where uh, Truist Park is now on I-75 southbound through Cobb County, I was listening to the traffic reports on WSB in the afternoon news, and I heard a traffic report. I think it um, it was it, it referenced you know police activity in the area and uh, to avoid certain parts of that. And so I was wondering if it was going to affect my drive. But then later on, we, we learned, you know, that this was involving a child who had died in a, in a hot car, in a car seat. And I looked back in my own back seat and I saw the empty car seat where my child, who, who at the time was very close to Cooper's age, where he would be riding if he were with me. And it just, you know, it made my heart sink. But then, um, I happen to know, you know, I I started out in law enforcement when I was 18. Um, I've been practicing law in Cobb for a while, and and I knew a lot of people that had certain connections with this case. And um, I came across bits and pieces of of information, and um, I remember getting, I, I was at a it was a swim meet, right? And it was really hot and humid and my cell phone starts ringing and I, it says CNN on there. And it turns out to be the bureau chief of, of CNN center. And so she was saying that someone had given her my information is, and they were trying to figure out just what the hell was going on because this case was really picking up some steam. One thing led to another though. And um, I wound up getting hired by CNN because this was such a big deal that you know, I guess they figured I was helpful in helping them understand the the local dynamics. Uh, when I was a prosecutor in Cobb County, I had been assigned to uh, the same Superior Court judge that was handling it. So I knew the defense lawyers, I knew the prosecutors, I knew the judge, I knew half the cops that were involved in it. And so this just started me on a media odyssey that morphed into, um, you know, a, a, a being hired by the network, getting into uh, legal uh, analysis for national news, for radio, um, podcasts, of course, I had my own podcast and it just sort of set off a, um, an interesting piece of, of my adult life. But, um, the, the one thing that I can't get away from is that it came at the cost of the life of a child. And, um, and that is just what is so, so sad about this. And that's, what's always drawn me, um, to this terrible case, um, we we can't ever get away from the fact that regardless of what happened, a, a sweet, innocent child lost his life. But at the same time, you know, those of us who are students of the of justice, we we want to we want our trials to be fair. We want juries to reach the right results for the right reasons, and so. I mentioned earlier that I was sort of all over the place on my opinions of what this evidence means or maybe didn't mean. Now, fast forward to October of uh, 2022, and obviously enough years have passed that I've had time to think about it. And when I look at the Supreme Court's opinion, it just makes so much sense to me. I mean, and I feel like I knew all along that it was a mistake to not uh, sever these trials. I knew all along that it was a mistake to throw all this other evidence uh, of all these other bad things that Ross Harris was doing. Right. I, I knew that it was legally a mistake to to jumble all this up because the danger of doing that is is what we saw happen, is that a jury makes a very important decision uh, for the wrong reason. You know, you want them to make their decision based on reliable evidence. And the fact that somebody's a pervert, a philanderer, and just a general bad person uh, for something that they do in, in one context does not translate into them automatically being guilty of something unrelated. So, um, it, you know, people can argue, well, there may be some kind of relation because it goes to how distracted he was. Well, that's fine. If you want to talk about distraction, we're talking about negligence criminal negligence maybe but we're not talking about murder so there's just not this nexus between between all these other things extracurricular stuff that he was doing there's not this nexus between that and and what happened on the day that cooper died if there is a nexus it's very tenuous 
And we're talking about, now we're talking about a man's life, a father's life. Okay. So we, nothing's going to bring Cooper back, but the justice system needs to operate properly. needs to operate fairly. So the Supreme court reminded us of that. And, um, I'm, I'm certainly no advocate for, for anybody in this case. I just want to see, I just want to see the justice system work and the Supreme court has, has made a, made its ruling. And I think it was the right one. And it's very, very well written. And we will now just have to wait and see what happens next in the case against Ross Harris. Again, so surreal to see this case and story and his name back in the headlines. Obviously, there's still a lot of ground to cover for all the parties involved. So I will keep you updated as soon as I hear more about what's to come. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Nicole Bennett. This is my true crime podcast, Beyond Criminal Headlines. Every few weeks, you'll be able to find new episodes on any of your favorite podcast providers featuring conversations between myself and esteemed journalists across the industry, experts in the field of true crime who've covered some of the most notorious crimes in our history and I say it at the end of every episode, you can also follow the podcast on Facebook. It's at Beyond Criminal Headlines. Please reach out to me there with questions, ideas for cases that we can cover in upcoming episodes. I hope you learned something from this week's episode on the Ross Harris trial featuring the esteemed Philip Holloway. We'll be back again soon. Until next time, this is your host for Beyond Criminal Headlines, Nicole Bennett, signing off. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.